Hello and welcome to the Life of Gusto podcast. I'm Augusto Andres. My guest on this episode is Michael Mongan, the current Solicitor General for the state of California. Mr. Mongan has more than 15 years of experience in both private practice law and the government. He's worked in Congress, served as a clerk for the DC Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court. And he was deputy counsel for Vice President Joe Biden during the first two years of the Obama administration. Mr. Mongan has argued three cases before the Supreme Court, including a defense of DACA, which was upheld by the court in 2020. Tune in for a conversation about his journey to a career in the law and in public service, and what it's like to argue before the Supreme Court, both in person and remotely. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button, share the podcast with your friends, and thanks for listening. Michael Mongan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, there's so many places I, I want to start, but I, I, f- I figured we would just start with the present. And I wanted to ask you about your role as Solicitor General. I, I think if you asked um, people on the street, what is a Solicitor General? They might, I don't know, confuse it with uh, the Surgeon General or, <laughs> or think like, oh, solicitors, I don't like solicitors because <laughs> they have that sign on their door. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about um, what is the Solicitor General and what do you do in your work? Yeah, sure. So I work for the Attorney General of the state of California. Um, the title can be a little bit misleading because it makes it seem like I head up my own independent operation, but that is definitely not the case. We report up to the Attorney General, current, currently Attorney General uh, Rob Bonta. Um, and different states have slightly different roles for their solicitors general, but usually it means that you are the top appellate lawyer for that state. And what that means is uh, appellate law is what you do after a trial or after a trial court judge makes a decision in a case. And if one of the parties disagrees with that decision or disagrees with the jury verdict, then you go up to an appellate court So in California, you would go up to the State Court of Appeal and ultimately to the California Supreme Court. In the federal system, you'd go up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and ultimately up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And you basically write legal briefs, sort of like a long memo to those courts, asking them to rule in your favor. And usually you'll then have an oral argument where you show up uh, in person, before a panel of judges who ask you questions about the case, and then they go off uh, and write an opinion and decide who wins the case. California has quite a lot of appellate uh, activity because we're a very large state. We've Mm -hmm. got over a a thousand attorneys at the California Department of Justice. Uh, And my job is to oversee that appellate activity. I have a relatively small team of attorneys who take a lead role in a small sliver of those appellate cases. And then we also consult and advise our colleagues throughout the department as they're handling their own appellate matters. And what would you say um, for the layperson, what's the, the difference between what the attorney general does and, and what, what uh, you do? Well, the attorney general is the elected head of the California Depart- Department of Justice. Um, he is a constitutional officer under our state constitution. And so he supervises, or she, uh, in in some circumstances, supervises the entire operation. 
um, and has purview not just into the litigation of cases like the DACA case that our department recently litigated, mm -hmm. but also oversees a lot of law enforcement activities, um, things like the forensic laboratories that review uh, DNA crime scene information, uh, supervises things like the Bureau of, of Gambling Control, does a lot of policy work with the legislature um, to shape what the state does in areas like criminal justice reform. So it's a much more senior and broader portfolio. Um, my office only gets involved in, in a sliver of the work that the attorney general oversees. And how did you get to um, become solicitor general? Uh, is that a position that you were looking to take on it at some point in your career or is it uh, something that kind of, how did that happen? It kind of just ended up happening. I took a pretty meandering path uh, to this position and, and really to practicing law generally. I had a, a lot of different career interests when I was younger. I wanted to be a cowboy and then a firefighter <laughs> and then an architect and then a doctor. I uh, went to college thinking that I would be pre-med and realized that I had no interest in that subject. <laughs> and um, on the advice of my brother actually, ended up deciding to just study what I was interested in, which uh, was really sort of politics and, and government and history. And through that, I ended up spending some time for a semester in Washington, D.C., and I worked on Capitol Hill for a senator from Montana and just loved that experience and uh, ended up majoring in poli-sci and headed back out to D.C. after I graduated from college. And I worked on the Hill again. I worked for the Senate Finance Committee on Medicare and Medicaid policy. And from that, I really thought that I wanted to work in government in some political or policy capacity for the rest of my life. And I wrestled with what to do next. I, I thought that I wanted to go to graduate school, but I wasn't sure what type of graduate school. And I looked around and a lot of the people who had the types of policy or political jobs that I thought I might want to have one day had all gone to law school. And so I figured, all right, I'll go to law school, which parenthetically is not a great reason for going to law school. Um, it's, a, it's a big decision and you take out a lot of debt and uh, going to law school with no intent uh, of practicing law is something you should think hard about before doing. Um, but that is, that is what I did. And even throughout law school, I felt like I would go back to Washington and, and work in government. Um, but a number of my uh, advisors, people who I admired, really recommended that it would be a good thing to go clerk for a federal judge. Um, and so I, I clerked for a federal judge and, and then for a second judge. And, you know, again, I joined that experience, but had this political bug and, and really wanted to get more into the political side of things. And I did. And I, I went and, and worked for Joe Biden um, in the early stages of the uh, Obama administration right. and ultimately decided that I missed the law and I missed the practice of law. And so I came back to California and you know started practicing law out here, first at a private firm 
And then when an opportunity opened up at the California Solicitor General's office, I applied and, and got that job. And that led to my current position. What was it, your initial, uh, what was the draw initially to working for the government? What was it about that that was appealing to you? You know, I think a lot of these life decisions, career decisions are best informed by gut feelings. And when I worked for that first internship working in the U.S. Senate in 1999, I just loved the job. I loved going into work every day. I never felt that about any type of job. Mm. Um, I love my colleagues. Uh, working in government it tends to attract pretty good, decent people, mm -hmm. um, you know, people who care about the greater good and are on a similar wavelength to me. I loved the excitement of working in that particular government capacity, the buzz surrounding a legislature, and sometimes it's fast-paced and late nights, but you're looking to move legislation and really, you know, get something done, ideally. I loved the sense of mission and, and esprit de corps that you feel within a, a team in an environment like that, and a mission that is driven not by profit, but by some sense that you are working to try and make things a little bit better. And so I just liked the feeling of it. And when I was coming out of college, I wanted to go back and have that feeling again. And I think over the years, that sense of wanting to have that feeling um, pulled me back towards different types of government roles. Mm. And can you say a little bit about your experience in uh, working with, uh, working for Joe Biden? What was that like working in the White House? Yeah, it was really fascinating. Um, so I, I can back up a little bit because it's it's a sort of interesting story how I got there, which mm -hmm. is um, it was coming out of my second clerkship. This was in the summer of 2008. And I was really interested in working on the Obama-Biden campaign. And I kind of felt like here I was, I'd come out of law school, I had a few judicial clerkships under my belt, and I would just send an email and they would welcome me with open arms and like make me the deputy campaign manager or something. And of course, that's not how it played out. I couldn't get anybody to respond to my emails. They were really? completely oversubscribed. Everybody in the country wanted to Everybody work Everybody wanted to work for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I didn't have a lot of relevant experience either. It's not like I had been doing a lot. I did a little bit of campaign work in 2000, but I hadn't recently been working on campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like it wasn't going to happen, but I reached out to some people I knew in Washington, actually, from when I worked in the Senate and said I, I was very interested in getting involved. And they connected me with a guy named Chris Liu, who had been the legislative director for Senator Obama. And we had coffee and he said, look, there's no way you're going to get a job on the campaign, but we've got this small group of people who are working on the transition, the sort of pre-election planning for the transition if mm -hmm. uh, Obama wins and you could come in as a research assistant in that group. And so I said, all right, well, that sounds interesting and ended up doing a lot of very low level, but you know, fun and, and rewarding uh, research, policy research and that evolved into a job working as deputy counsel for Joe Biden in the transition and then in the first two years or so of his administration. Um, and it was really fun um, to be there at the inception of an administration. It's a little bit chaotic 
um, you walk into the White House and the executive office building where our offices were across the street. And at the beginning of an administration, there's just nothing. I mean, literally, you walk in, you have a computer with no files, you have bookshelves with no manuals or procedures, because all of that from the prior administration is wiped clean and it goes to the National Archives. Mm. And so you really have to, it's almost like a startup. You have mm. to invent a new operation from the ground up. Um, and I worked with the Council of the Vice President, Cynthia Hogan, and you know, really enjoyed that work. But as I said, ultimately felt like I missed being involved in the legal system a little bit more directly and, and thinking and writing about specific legal issues. Mm-hmm. Did you get much uh, contact with uh, Joe Biden? I got some contact with him. I don't want to overstate the degree of contact because I think a lot of people in Washington uh, ha- have made their careers on overstating the degree <laughs> of their contact with elected <laughs> officials. And I don't want to be one of those people. But I did work with him on a few issues. Our portfolio was kind of a mixed one in the council's office, and it was an interesting combination of projects. One was we did a lot of work on judicial nominations. And so I had some interaction with um, Vice President Biden and and President Obama in that context of briefing them about potential nominees. We did a lot of national security legal work because the vice president is by statute a member of the National Security Council. Mm -hmm. So anything that's going through the National Security Council process that had a legal aspect, Mm -hmm. our office would have a seat at the table and we'd be expected to brief the vice president. So I had some opportunities to brief him on legal and policy issues related to that. And then a big part of being a government lawyer is sort of compliance. Um, making sure that the financial disclosure forms are completed and signed and filled out the right way. And in the Obama administration, at least, there was a quaint idea that the vice president and and president should uh, disclose to the public their tax forms. So we would work to make sure that those were Oh, oh really? Is that that an idea? (laughs) It's it's quaint. Um, (laughs) And so in that context, um, we had opportunities to work with the vice president and and to meet with him and you know enjoyed a, a bit of a chance to to get to know him in that capacity cycling back to your clerkship site you didn't just clerk for anybody but you clerked for Merrick Garland and and then um, David Souter at the Supreme Court can you talk about those experiences and and um, on how they sh- they helped influence you and shape your uh, your career and your outlook on on the law. Yeah, sure. Those were really formative experiences for me in similar ways, although they were a little bit different. I was very lucky to clerk for Judge Garland on the D.C. Circuit. Um, a, a probably didn't deserve to get hired into that clerkship, but a, a few. Um, fortunate events happened and he ended up with a slot and I was there and and I got hired for it. The thing that was most impactful to me about working for Judge Garland is that there was this really amazing woman uh, who worked for a judge down the hall from Judge Garland who I met and and then eventually ended up dating and, and became my wife, Leela. So uh, I sometimes think that if 
the judge hadn't hired me, my life would be radically different <laughs> and, and not and not nearly as um, happy as it's been. But the thing about a judicial clerkship, and, and particularly when you're working for judges as amazing as the ones I worked for, is that it's really an opportunity to complete your legal education. Um, I mean, the analogy I use is in medical school, you, you go and you sit in lecture halls for two years, and then the last two years, you're actually going around and seeing patients with doctors and learning you know, how to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. Law school is a little bit different. You have three years that are mainly devoted to sitting in lecture halls. Maybe you do some clinical work, um, but a clerkship can be like the last year or two of your law school education because you're sitting there at the side of a really smart jurist who is looking at particular cases, um, thinking deeply about the law and trying to figure out the right way to apply the law to a particular set of facts. And in the process, you know, trying to write judicial opinions and so much of the law is about writing and analytical writing. And so you get to see how a, a brilliant jurist attacks a legal problem and how their drafts of an opinion evolve over mm -hmm. the course of, you know, 12 or 18 different iterations. Mm -hmm. um, and Judge Garland was an amazing mentor, continues to be a, an amazing mentor to me. He's made himself available um, to me over the years since I clerked for him and has been a supporter for me uh, all along the way. And I just learned a ton from him about sort of dedication to the craft of lawyering, about how much time and attention goes into getting every little detail right, but also about public service. I mean, he's just mm -hmm. a very public service oriented individual who cares deeply about the rule of law, about um, about justice, you know, about our country. And I was really happy uh, to see him confirmed as, as attorney general. Yes, I just think that he's a, an ideal person for that role. That's amazing. And then um, you were able to, to um, clerk for uh, Justice Souter. Can you talk a little bit about, about that experience and how different um, or similar it was to working for Judge Garland? Yeah, it was similar in a lot of ways. Um, they're both brilliant and both just tremendously warm individuals um, and, and great mentors. Uh, Justice Souter, um, is someone who is not in the public eye a lot. Uh, but if you ever have a chance to watch a YouTube of you know one of the few speeches or interviews he's given, I would really recommend it he's because <laughs> he's incredibly funny. Um, he's really quick. Uh, he's just a salt of the earth, decent, um, New England guy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. loves New Hampshire. He loves his home in New Hampshire. He's so happy to be back in New Hampshire after his time in Washington. And he actually, in a lot of respects, really reminded me of my grandfather. Mm -hmm. um, and I always felt you know, very comfortable working with Justice Souter. And he too has been a tremendous uh, mentor and, and supporter for me over the years and always available on a minute's notice to give career advice or personal advice. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just 
feel tremendously fortunate to have had the chance to work with him um, before he retired. I might be accused by some of my listeners of bearing the lead, but I want to talk about your uh, experience arguing before the court. So you've argued before the Supreme Court now three times. Is that, is that right? That's right. One in person, well, two virtually. One in person, <laughs> yeah, two, two via conference call. Can you talk about what, what that has been like? Um, and I've listened to all three of those arguments and um, I still get a, just this incredible sense of, of pride in uh, listening to you. I imagine your, that first time you must have been in a bundle of emotions. Um, can you talk about what, what it was like to, to do that? My first argument in the U.S. Supreme Court was in the DACA case um, back in uh, November of 2019. And yeah, a lot of emotion surrounding that. I think there's a lot of anxiety, as you could imagine, leading up to a Supreme Court argument, certainly uh, to your, your first Supreme Court argument. In a case of that magnitude, there's some added stresses and pressures. But really, in any case, it is a sort of a daunting experience. I mean, you go up to the Supreme Court building, and for those who haven't been to the court, it's a, a big, massive, impressive edifice. You it's walk a Roman up these, temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, these massive columns, and you walk up the marble steps, and there's people lined up, and sometimes there's protesters outside. And the courtroom itself is, you know, a, a very impressive space, extremely high ceilings, and then the, the lectern uh, where the advocates speak from is very close to the bench, um, much closer than in most appellate courtrooms. So that when you're standing there and all nine justices are questioning you, you, you almost have to really turn your head you know, pretty far to the left and then pretty far mm -hmm. to the right so that you're actually making eye contact with the justices. So it was a, you know, a, a, a challenging experience but I was really proud to be a part of it. And um, I felt like we got a lot of tough questions on the day of, um, but we're able to, to get our main points across. And then we were very heartened by the result that came out when um, the Supreme Court substantially agreed with our position in the decision that was released in June of 2020. Right. You know, we often make a big deal of the one person who makes the argument before the court, but I've heard you talk about the, the team um, and all the people behind the scenes working on the case. Can you talk a little bit about the collaborative nature of, of that work and all the help that you get in prepping uh, your argument? That's an important thing to underscore mm -hmm. is when you look at these Supreme Court arguments, there's just one you know woman or man standing up there arguing. The reality is there's just dozens of people who have spent an enormous amount of time in the work that led up to that moment, uh, litigating the case in the lower courts and in uh, preparing the Supreme Court brief. And then you go through moot courts where you have sort of a practice session and people pretend to be justices. And um, my colleague, Sam Siegel, you know, and I sort of moved out to DC for 10 days leading up to that argument. Uh, so for all of us, it's a, a real big moment. And that was a tremendously important case for the state of California, for our entire state coalition, for Attorney General Becetta, um, you know, for me personally, and the whole team across our department who had worked on that. When you're 
lucky enough to be the advocate, you feel the weight of that on your soldier, shoulders mm -hmm. that you're arguing on behalf of your clients and your whole coalition and all the attorneys who, who worked on it. And then having to shift to virtual, what's been the kind of the challenge of, of doing your arguments um, via computer? So different courts have actually approached this differently. And the Supreme Court arguments are not by computer. They're just by telephone conference. Um, oh, okay. Most of the other appellate courts have done them by Zoom or by some other video conferencing technology. Okay. Okay. And each of those presents you know, different challenges, but also opportunities. So you're not seeing their faces. You're just hearing them, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's Very one of the big the big challenges, because as I'm, you know, we're having this discussion now, but we're doing it by Zoom and I can see you. And so right. if you're trying to cut in, I can pause. But on a phone, as you know, you don't have those visual cues. Right. And the other thing that the Supreme Court has done in these remote arguments is they've structured things a little bit differently. So in a live argument, traditionally, you would go up, you would have a prepared opening statement, um, but sometimes you'd get cut off with a question after 15 or 20 seconds. And then it's just question, question, question throughout right. the rest of the argument. Right. More recently, they've, they've tried to reserve a minute or two uninterrupted at the beginning before the questions start. Mm -hmm. But in the telephonic argument situation, it is more structured. So there's a set two minute period you have for opening remarks. And then each justice by order of seniority will ask you one-on-one -on -one questions for a period of time, usually around three minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have one minute to wrap up. Okay. So the main difference for me in terms of preparation is you need to practice the way it's gonna be in real life. Right. And so our, our moot courts, our practice sessions were done very differently. In, in a, the run-up to the DACA argument, we did those in person with a panel of people pretending to be judges who would interrupt each other and ask a bunch of questions. Mm -hmm. um, for the telephonic arguments, we've done them by Zoom, but had everybody turn off their video so you don't have those visual cues. And then we stuck to those time constraints so mm -hmm. that you know it's just one person asking you questions for three minutes and then they stop and then you move on to the next person. Right. Um, and it's a different dynamic for the argument. In some respects, I think that there are there are downsides, but also some advantages to the more structured telephonic way. It's kind of nice to have that one-on-one -on -one opportunity to address the concerns of a particular justice and also nice to have the time at the beginning and the end to make sure that you're able to get your main points across. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's been one of the great aspects of, um, of the telephonic argument settings. Mm -hmm. And thinking about uh, some of the, you know, the cases that you have have uh, argued there you know two of them are extremely high profile um, you know defending the Affordable Care Act and DACA the most recent one probably one that most people aren't familiar with uh, doesn't just because it doesn't take doesn't get as much um, media attention but they all involve um, you know real human impact you know their lives at stake in, in a lot of cases um, you, I'm sure you think about that, but you know, are you laser focused on on the arguments when you go into court, or do you have to do you pause sometimes and think about like the the human element and the impact that what you're doing has on on people? I think it's a combination. Um, 
you know, as an appellate advocate, you really need to be laser focused on the particular legal issues that are before the court. And, you know, courts decide cases based on the law and um, and not on the emotional or sort of policy considerations. But to be sure, when you're arguing or litigating a case about the Affordable Care Act or about DACA, uh, it's important to be mindful of the larger impact of of that litigation. Sometimes that informs some of the strategic choices that are made in approaching the litigation. And always, I think, as public servants and as government lawyers, it's important to understand the impact of the work you're doing on the country and on your your fellow citizens. And so, yeah, that's definitely something that's top of mind as you're going into a case like that. Mm. And uh, the court hasn't um, uh, ruled on on Affordable Care Act or or Cedar Farms yet, right? Is that correct? That's right. So normally the court will issue its decisions in all of the cases that have been argued in a term uh, before that term wraps up. And this current term is scheduled to wrap up towards the end of June. So we would expect to see them issue decisions in those cases in the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you if you can say anything about um, your thoughts for how you think they'll they'll uh, roll based on oral argument. I never venture predictions. <laughs> um, I'll keep my fingers crossed, but I'll leave it to uh, other pundits to uh, to speculate about about how they might come out. Of the of the three, was one um, more challenging than the others in terms of uh, the way the argument went? You know, I think each case presents its own challenges. Uh, the Cedar Point case, which is the most recent one, um, and as you said, you know, maybe less high profile in terms of public or media attention, but presents an important issue with respect to the takings clause. It's a very active bench, lots of lots of questions from all sides. Um, mm-hmm. So that was interesting and, and you know, presented it, its own challenges. But, you know, they, they're all pretty challenging in their own ways. <laughs> As you know, I was listening to that and I was sweating in some part for you. <laughs> um, did that feel as tense as it sounded <laughs> to me listening to it? Well, as I said, you know, any oral argument uh, feels pretty tense from the advocate standpoint. I think that was an interesting illustration of what often happens in appellate arguments, which is um, oftentimes the court is trying to figure out what is the right legal rule mm-hmm. in a particular area. That's particularly true when you're dealing with a court of last resort like the U.S. Supreme Court or the California Supreme Court. And they're testing um, how that rule would apply in circumstances, hypothetical circumstances that are not presently before the court. Because when you're a court like the U.S. Supreme Court, you need to be mindful of not just the outcome in the case in front of you, but also what's going to happen in, in you know, other types of cases as this rule that is being considered is applied going forward. Mm-hmm. And so what you often see is an advocate getting confronted, as I was, with a lot of more extreme hypotheticals right. to kind of test the outer limits and the boundaries of that rule. And that's one of the fun and challenging parts of appellate advocacy is thinking hard in advance about those uh, hypotheticals and and you know, trying to come back with satisfying answers, explain why your rule is the right one, and and why 
you know, either the hypothetical might be different from the facts presented in a particular case or why, you know, the court shouldn't be concerned about the result in that hypothetical scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so we spend a lot of time on that in advance, and that was certainly a, a big focus of that particular argument. Mm. Was it fun? Is it fun for you? Or is it you're just not thinking about that in the moment? Does it, but can you look back at it and say well, that was, you know, in the same way that like after a, I don't know, after a sporting event, after a game, you feel like, oh, that was really invigorating. That was really fun. How do you, how do you feel afterwards? Yeah, I think the key part of your question is, is looking back. So um, I think Justice Scalia had this quip when somebody asked him, do you enjoy writing? <clears throat> and he said, I enjoy having written. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel the same way about pretty much all of my appellate arguments. Um, I enjoy having argued uh, after the fact. It's nice to have completed it. And often you can look back and feel proud of, of what you accomplished. In the run-up and in the moment, uh, I wouldn't say that for me, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it, it, it's just a ton of work um, and a lot of anxiety. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we don't talk a lot about that as a profession. I think law is one of those professions where everybody wants to sort of act supremely confident throughout, but there's a lot of stress and pressure and anxiety leading up to those things. And so, yeah, you feel a lot better about them after them looking back than you do in the moment or leading up to it. And, and I mean, do you have a routine before an argument? Do you, do you have a, a pump up song or do you meditate or, or just kind of relax and, and breathe? What's, what's your, do you have a routine? Yeah, I think everybody has their own routine and mine has evolved a little bit over the years. You know, there, there's certainly a routine in terms of the actual work and the documents you prepare and how you review cases in your moot courts. I guess some of the more idiosyncratic aspects of my routine are it tends to involve a lot of exercise in the days leading up to the argument. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I try to get a lot of runs in. Uh, but I also go on long hikes and sometimes I'll bring lists of questions with me and I'm talking out loud as I'm hiking. I just find that at a certain point, you don't really need to have your notes in front of you because it's all got to be in your mind. And I find it calming and helpful to be outside. And, you know, you get some weird looks from people out on the trail, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it's been a lot easier in the pandemic era because I've just got a mask on and they can't <laughs> tell that I'm, that I'm talking to myself. And yeah, they're, they're, you know, I think a pump up uh, mix makes sense. I was actually reading President Obama's uh, autobiography recently, and he was talking about how before his presidential debates, he had a pump up mix. Yeah. And I would encourage that for, um, for most people who are going into a presentation, you, know, you want to set yourself <laughs> up a little bit. Uh, I'm not going to share with you the contents of my pump up I mix, because that say. would be... <laughs> It would be way too embarrassing. There's a lot of, you know, mid nineties hip hop. I was going to say, rec you would there, Tupac on there? <laughs> there may be, there may or may not be Tupac. A lot of um, mid nineties uh, hip hop for sure. From, from, you know, sort of Tam high class of 97 era. 97. When you're not working, you mentioned running and, and hiking. Part of the podcast is also 
talking about the things that people do to to make the most of of, of life. What are what are some of your favorite things to do outside of work? Yeah, so I love to run um, and hike, and it's funny. I have really been taking advantage of that more in the last few years and particularly during the pandemic than ever before. I mean, I grew up in Marin, as you know, mm-hmm. and I appreciated that it was a pretty place, but I don't think that I ever really took advantage of all the open space that we have. And um, so that's one thing, you know, my wife and we're trying to get our kids into hiking and <laughs> they're, they're into it sometimes if you bribe them, but we, we've been trying to make that a big focus of our lives. Um, do you have a favorite you know, hike or walk in the area? I do. I mean, so a few of my close friends from growing up and I have a, a tradition. We often hike up to the top of Mount Tam over Thanksgiving weekend. And that's a real special hike. You know, sometimes you can just go from your front door all the way up to the top and take in the whole Bay Area. Um, Is that before so or after the stop at the 2 a.m. club? <laughs> no, no stop at the 2 a.m. club uh, on that on that particular hike, right? It, you know, I love trying to spend time with family and friends around here. A big part of the reason that Leela and I moved back from D.C. 10 or 12 years ago was because we wanted to be closer to family and friends. And I feel really lucky that a lot of my friends from growing up and from high school, my brother, my parents are still in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could spend more time with those folks. It's always challenging with young kids and a busy professional existence, but uh, we try to get together for barbecues and that type of thing. And I love reading. And, you know, my, my biggest passion in that area is for history and biography and, uh, you know, particularly American history. I haven't been doing as much of that in the last few years as I would like, just because the work side of things have have been so busy. And at the end of a long work day of reading legal briefs, you kind of want to hang out with your kids and and your wife. And the last thing you want to do is pick up a big book. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, that was one of uh, the questions I wanted to ask. I know that you're a big reader, but is there a a book that you've read in the last uh, few years so that you feel like is um, important one that that we all should have on, on our bookshelves? But this is going to be a tough sell. It's always a tough sell. But anybody who is interested in history uh, and biography or even just writing and storytelling, I I would really commend the biography series of Lyndon Johnson by by Caro. Mm -hmm. It's just the most riveting set of books I've ever read. Like they're real page turners. And you can start with the first one, which is only a couple hundred pages and see if you like it. But it, it's it's like my Harry Potter series. I mean, it is just <laughs> and he's he his story is almost incredible. And the way that Caro tells the story, um, the detail and the methodical research, I, I just find it to be one of the most rewarding reading experiences I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you read histories or biographies that take a very black or white approach you know somebody was all bad or all good um Mm -hmm. you know a total hero or a complete devil and the reality is that's rarely true and and it's all shades of gray and uh lyndon johnson and and you know some respects was an amazing figure accomplished a lot of uh incredible things in other respects he had some 
serious shortcomings and was right. uh, you know, pretty brutal on, on staff and others. And you get a real complete picture of the man. And I think that's the mark of of good biography and you know, and, and a good sort of candid portrayal of a subject. Mm -hmm. um, you think about um, California opening up again, the, the US hopefully opening up and getting, putting the pandemic behind us. What are, what are some things that you're looking forward to um, in your personal life and also um, professional life? Well, like I was saying, I look forward to being able to have dinner parties with friends and hug, hug my friends and family members. <laughs> I think we've missed that. And I have a regular gathering of some friends that we try to do each summer that we had to miss last year. And we're now trying to figure out whether we can make it this summer. We were supposed to go and meet up in Nashville because people are sort of spread across the country and just getting out and, and into the country and meeting different people in different parts of the country is something that I've missed. It's obviously been such a terrible and harmful experience, um, but there have been some silver linings for me at least. And I really have enjoyed spending as much time with my kids as I've been able to in the last you know, year and, and two months. And mm -hmm. that's something that I wasn't able to do nearly as much previously, you know, commuting into the city every day or up to Sacramento. And I'm hoping to find a way to, you know, spend more time around the home and, and with my immediate family, because I just feel like I've built a stronger relationship, particularly with my kids than I had before. Because, you know, when you're when you're working a 40 or 50 or 60 hour week in an office, you maybe see your kids for a, a few minutes in the morning and maybe if you're lucky, a few minutes at night and, and then it's the weekends and that's just not enough time. So hoping that we can all draw on some of the lessons that we learned about, you know, positive aspects of the last year and, and try and incorporate that into our lives going forward. Right. If I could throw a big picture question at you, um, the words equal justice under law emblazoned across the Supreme Court uh, building. And this past year, we've seen um, so many um, instances of injustice. We've seen lots of protests across the country. What are some things that you think we need to, to, to do um, to live up to that, um, those words? And you know, what are some of the things that, that you think we should be focused on in the next few years and trying to, to make a world where equal justice is, is something that is available for everyone? I think I'll answer that question at a sort of high level um, and draw some inspiration from some of the remarks that Judge Garland made in connection with his nomination and uh, confirmation to be attorney general. I mean, I think what that means to me and one of the most important principles in our country and in any well-functioning democracy is you know, the rule of law that ours is a government of laws and not of men or women, and that we are governed by constitutional principles and statutory principles and judicial precedent that binds all of us as citizens in this democracy, and that when people come in contact with the government, with the courts, it's critical that they 
have confidence that those laws are going to be applied fairly based on the facts without favor or disfavor to anyone based on the color of their skin or their background or you know any other distinguishing characteristic. And that has been the ideal that we've all been aspiring to throughout this country. And I think you know the rule of law is, it sounds trite, but I mean, it is critical to our success as a society and as a country and to our democratic values in the sense that we want all of the participants in our system in every aspect of it to feel like they are receiving that sort of fair, equal treatment. And, you know, I think we have sometimes fallen short of that ideal, but that's the aspirational goal that every one of us, and particularly those of us who work in the court system, you know, in, in the government and public service always need to be aspiring to. And I think that there, you know, is an active debate about how do we get there and issues like criminal justice reform that are receiving a lot of attention in California and from our attorney general. And I think you're gonna see that debate play out at the state level and at the federal level in the years and, and decades to come. And it's a critically important debate. And I'll defer to others on the particulars of, you know, what are the policy changes that we might need? But those sort of high-minded ideals, they, they sort of sound like slogans, but I, I think that they are actually an important part of the day-to-day -day work of anybody who works in our court system. And we each need to be thinking hard about them as we go about litigating any particular case or prosecuting any particular case about what does the rule of law demand? What does fairness and justice demand in this particular case? Sounds like a perfect place to end. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You know, when I first started the podcast, Mike was one of the first people that I thought about getting on the show. Obviously, he's been just a little busy, but I'm grateful we found the time to talk. And I hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about him and his work. Mike is hands down one of the smartest and one of the kindest people that I know. As a Californian, as an American, it's gratifying to know that we have a person of his caliber and character working on behalf of the rule of law. If you made it this far, thanks for listening. For any legal wonks out there, or if you just want to find out more about the cases we discussed, I'll drop some links in the show notes and on my website. It's been a busy spring for me, but I hope to get out more episodes this summer. So come back soon for more conversation about finding your way and living a life of gusto. Thanks, everyone. Take care. See you soon.